financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartsman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartsman. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman. Today is Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. And I'm on, as always, with my partner, Dominic Tavella. How are you, Dominic? Uh, doing great, Mike. Another week in paradise, so down here in Florida. So who's better than me? Yeah, I see the sun shining in 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 your screen. And we've had a little cloudy day today. Great segue. I love how you always set me up for that. Got a cloudy day in the market today as well, Dom. Um, last week, Although it was a down week, it was down by a hair. Um, the S&P was down 0. Uh, 0.20, but the media still called it the third down week in a row, which is factual. But it does seem like, like as we talked about in earlier pod, podcasts, the market got a little ahead of itself. And it appears, while still up for the year, it's coming down to earth a little bit. Yeah, the mood swing um, has been pretty, pretty dramatic, uh, Mike, um, today being kind of the, the cherry on top of the cake. Um, and ironically, we've talked about this good news being bad news, bad news being good news. We've gotten some pretty good news on the economic front and maybe not great news on the inflation front. And the combination of the two has people worried again on just how aggressive is the Fed going to be in tightening interest rates. And today was a rough day, if we want to answer that question. And just to be clear, the bad news on the inflation front was that the economy is not quite ready to roll over yet, which you could argue to normal people. Well, what's wrong with that? Um, retail sales, meaning the consumer is continuing to spend money. And the more the consumer spends, that means prices stay elevated, mm -hmm. right? The uh, employment numbers came out reasonably well. Inflation came in a little bit hotter than some of the quote unquote experts have been talking about. But I didn't think it was a horrible number, Mike. But people would have been happier, investors and, and uh, equity strategists, economists, all would have been happier if the inflation number was a little bit lower and continuing this downward trend that that we've been on but the, the inflation number never goes straight down it didn't go straight up it didn't, it's not going to come straight down so we're going to see these bumps in the road but I, I think honestly mike you hit the nail on the head the market just got a little bit too optimistic to in such a short time frame i think it got ahead of, it, of itself dominic i know one of the expressions we throw around which you'd love is hard landing or soft landing right i know that's one of your uh one of your favorite nuggets the media likes to toss around. And last week, 10 days, lo and behold, we we're hearing about no landing. No landing. No landing. Let's just keep going. So the expectations of the market just still remains, I don't know if it's, I don't know, unrealistic is the right word, but just people's hopes and wishes just seem to be out of whack sometimes. It's this mood, right, Mike? So just uh, so for everybody to get what we're talking about, hard landing means we go into a, a recession, maybe a deep recession, soft landing, maybe a very mild recession, which is actually what the Fed was calling for second, third quarter of this year, where the economy just dips below growth. Um, and now there was some pretty well-respected uh, uh, economists 
that we're talking about no landing, that we wouldn't even come close to uh, a recession this year. And again, this normally would be good news, right? Who wants a recession? Who wants the layoffs? Who wants high unemployment? Um, but with regard to the Fed and their fight against inflation, if the economy stays really strong, then it's not likely inflation comes down anytime soon. And that's exactly the worry, Mike. Right. And and so so then it gets turned on its head because the general expectation was there would have been a, a rate increase last month, which we got 25 basis points, and then maybe one more, perhaps two more, 25 basis points each. Then we're going to stop. And now the narrative's changing again. You know, the, the sand is changing. Maybe the Fed has to do more. Yeah, and I think and that's, that's why we're having to sell off now. You're exactly right, Mike. You're exactly spot on. So we were looking at, we got the 25 basis points, the 20 quarter of a percent that we were expecting, kind of expecting one more of about a quarter of a percent, and then a pause by the Fed. Hey, let's see how this stuff uh, works out, because it typically takes 12 to 18 months for interest rate hikes to kind of get embedded in the economy. So we're kind of looking at one more, then no pause. Now they're talking two to three more, and maybe the next one being half a percent. Again, I think the, the market is uh, a little little surprised. I think the data has been a little strong. You know, look, I think you're being gentle when you say a little surprised. I think the market would be generally spooked by, by that because they set the table ending with the with 22 ending and 23, 2023 beginning. You know, the 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 quote unquote experts down were pretty certain of what they were seeing. And now they all have to kind of change their forecast a little bit. Well, uh, uh, some of the experts. Right, Mike. And I hate the word expert because you and I talk about it all the time. Um, And we we've been saying, hey, these markets have gotten ahead of themselves. We think that inflation is going to be a lot stickier than some of the people in the market have been calling for. A lot of the partners that we work with, economists, and again, portfolio managers, have saying, hey, you know, we, we're kind of overall optimistic about the way we are in the economy and where interest rates are. But, you know, this has gone really fast, right? The, the markets have gone through this cycle in the first six weeks of the year, you know, really pricing in a very, very optimistic outcome. And it's, at least you and I have been cautiously, eh, you've got to be you got to be careful here. And and a lot of that was based on some of those big, big mega tech stocks, which got a little oversold and they started to recover pretty nicely. And and I just think psychologically, people feel good, Dom, with those stocks, whether it's Facebook or Amazon or Tesla, Apple. Know, Google, Apple, when 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 they're doing well, I just think it's kind of a breath of fresh air. And again, you could argue they got way oversold, and now they've gotten a little ahead of themselves, and they're giving some of that back as well. Um, and that's not retail; it's a little retail, but that's also the big institutions, mutual fund companies, taking some profits that they didn't see for all of 2022. Uh, look, Mike, and. You know, I'd, I want to go, I'd be okay with if it was just that segment of the market, but a very, very speculative sector of the market also did not only really well, but you can argue ridiculously well in that really short period of time with some of these companies up 30, 40, 50, 70% in a month. Um, and that's where I start to worry and go, wait, does, does that company that basically talked about maybe having to file 
for bankruptcy justified being up 70 percent and Mm -hmm. that just smelled like a little bit of that speculative nature that happened um in early uh uh, 2022 late 2021 um and that that worries me you know those big companies you rattle they'll be fine in the long run so even if if you bought them and they were a little bit high in price they'll be fine but some of these speculative names i don't know if they'll even be around 12 months from now those are the ones i'm particularly worried about I agree. I agree. We so don't play in that world. So so we 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 certainly, you know, I want don't want the viewers and the and the listeners uh, we're, we're not involved in any of that stuff. But but clearly is influencing the markets. It is, but thank God we don't have we don't even have any clients at this point who even asked to buy those which we're both grateful for for the most part. So listen, tonight we have David Lebovitz who is is the managing director of global market strategists at JP Morgan. You know, J.P. Morgan's a great client of ours, a great partner of ours, I should say. Um, they've been extremely helpful in, in finding us great investment ideas for our clients. You may recall, Dominic, that David was actually our first guest on our first podcast two years ago in February of 2021. He's agreed to come back tonight to uh, shed some light on some of the craziness we've been discussing. Um Great, great ideas, uh, and I think uh, you brought up uh, one of the the conferences we were at where we got to he- hear him speak and the timing of the Fed decisions. I think that'll be a great place to start and uh, maybe his outlook on interest rates going forward. So looking forward to this conversation tonight, Mike. We'll be right back with David Lebovitz from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-G-A-X, le tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. 
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with Dominic Tavella. And our special guest this evening, David Lebovitz, Managing Director, Global Market Strategist with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Good evening, David. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you guys again. Thanks for having me back. Welcome, David. Thank you. So, David, Dominic and I and our team had a unique experience this past April, I think it was, late April. Yeah, I think it was late April. We actually in a conference room with you in a, in a small meeting you guys held for us, and we got to watch your reaction in real time when Jerome Powell said, we're going to have to be more aggressive. I remember you were speaking before that and you kind of indicated that they're going to acknowledge that they had to be more aggressive because they got off to such a slow start. But I think you were a little surprised that even when they went from going, we're going to raise interest rates twice to basically we're going to raise them every meeting for the rest of the year. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, what we found so surprising about that was it almost sent a message from the Fed that they recognized they were behind the ball. And and what you know, the, the thing that I always come back to on on politicians and policymakers, you know, to an extent, they're like doctors, right? If you go into the doctor's office and you're feeling under the weather, you want the doctor to say, "Well, I know you don't feel great, but we've seen this before, and we know what what to do." You don't want the doctor to panic. And, and I think what struck me about Powell's comments last spring as they were embarking on this, frankly, unprecedented rate hike campaign was that they felt a little bit panicked, like they knew they should have started moving in advance of, of when they actually did. And now they were going to be forced to play catch up, which unfortunately, I think is, is a good way to describe, you know, where the Fed has been in recent months and, and frankly, where the Fed uh, may continue to be today. You know, David, we're going to talk about the forecast going forward, but at that moment, they clearly changed their tone. But I think for a good part of the year last year, markets really didn't believe what the Fed was saying. At what point did the, you, your team, the markets figure out, wait a minute, this time they actually mean it? So it's interesting because when, when the Fed started to do the consecutive 75 basis point hikes, that to me was the moment that the that the writing was really on the wall. And you know, I went back to something that was said to me very early on in my career, which is don't fight the Fed, right? And we've all been told not to fight the Fed many, many times over the years. I think part of what happened was that in the post-financial crisis environment, uh, investors were conditioned to, to not fight the Fed, right? And because the Fed always had their back at the first sign of a crack, at the first sign of market stress, the Fed would would jump right right in, and so you know markets were willing to to push back there. Whereas today you look at things, and it seems like we should be taking the Fed uh, very much at face value. And so by by the fourth quarter of last year, you know our view was that the the best view on the Fed should align with the dots, and we should listen to what the Fed is saying, um, watch what they're doing because they've been moving in line with their forecasts for the better part of you know the prior few months. Uh, and frankly, as we came into this year, you know, we we're very much of the view that the Fed has said that they're going to hike three more times, you know, as of the numbers in December. 
we should expect a minimum of, of three more hikes. And then as you guys alluded to, you know, you've begun to hear more and more about the potential for a fourth hike, maybe even a fifth hike coming over the, the course of the summer, potentially even 50 basis points when they get together in March. And so, again, I think that this is an environment where we do not fight the Fed. And that's a little bit different than where we were post-08 uh, when the Fed came riding to the rescue at, at any sign of any sign of stress. So, so David, in your opinion, it, it, it appeared to me, as, as I said on the open, heading into the year, you know, it was two or three rate hikes, 25 basis points each. It's, the narrative seems to be changing a little bit. How much of an, is that expectation that they may go further and, and higher baked in the cake yet? Or is there a potential for the market to really get rattled if it becomes more apparent that they are going to be more aggressive? Well, I, I like to think that today may have been kind of the first sign that the market is coming to terms uh, with what the Fed is saying. Watching the action over the past couple of weeks has been particularly interesting because you actually saw futures markets and, and rate markets reprice in line with what the Fed was, was laying out. You know, you look at the futures curve today, expectations are for the Fed to go somewhere between five and five and a quarter, which again would be in line with their current forecasts. And then rather than showing those cuts in the back half of 2023, the market is now pricing that the Fed will hold rates at that terminal level uh, into 2024. The question is, is that terminal level the right level? And I think that the answer there uh, may be no. I think that there's some upside risk around the current pricing of the funds rate. And the reason why I think that, you know, so I have two little girls under four uh, at home, and the older one likes to get out of bed during the middle of the night. So what do I do every night before bed? I walk around the house and I make sure all the doors are locked. If I'm not sure all the doors are locked, I don't just crawl under the covers, right? I do another spin around the house. And I think the same can be said about the Fed in this environment where you know they've come so far from the zero bound and they've put so much effort into trying to control this inflation issue that, you know, what's another 25 basis points if it makes sure that inflation actually goes back into the bottle? And so I think we need to recognize that the Fed is going to err on the side of caution here. And given the better economic data to start the year, given some of that more robust and stickier inflation data that we saw last week, we need to be realistic and recognize that, again, the risk is tilted to the upside on the policy rate uh, rather than to the downside. In other words, they'll do more, not less. Exactly. Exactly. And Dave, so the, the danger is that, you know, putting the brakes on the economy, slowing it down using higher interest rates, um, there's a lag effect, right? They raised interest rates a bunch of times last year. And I don't know that even today we've felt all of the economic impact of the rate hikes they've already done. Where, where's that tipping point where, hey, wait a minute, we've done too much and or slash the economy goes into a recession? So what, what's interesting is you've seen, you know, recessionary levels of, of some data and some variables, depending on where you look. You know, I think housing is a great example, um, given what the Fed has done with rates and given the impact on the subsequent impact on mortgage rates. You know, housing has been in a recession since since the middle of 2022. Um, the question when it comes to the economy as a whole I think really has to do with the impact of these rate hikes on employment. And, and this is where it gets very, very fuzzy, because to me, the most interesting chart today is the one that shows the unemployment rate and wage growth, right? You have the unemployment rate at 3.4%, and you have wage growth that is decelerated. 
right? Every economics textbook that we all ever read said that at full employment, which is where we think we are today, wage growth should be picking up, not cooling down. And what I think you're seeing are, are signs of labor hoarding. Um, you know, if I run a small business and I currently have seven employees, but I think I could get away with five, I'm continuing to, to hold on to those additional two because I'm worried that if I you know, get down the road and I need to hire them back, I'm going to be forced to do so at a higher price. And so as long as you have that, that tightness, and I think it's important to differentiate between tightness and strength, but as long as you have that tightness in the labor market, I think it's going to be difficult to see a traditional recession here in the United States. I think you could well see many recessions that roll through different parts of the economy. It was housing last year, and it looks like manufacturing and industrial production beginning to come under pressure today. Inventories are something that we're watching quite closely as well. But the whole economy will roll when the consumer finally comes under pressure. The consumer's health is directly tied to the labor market. And it's not clear to us that the labor market is going to behave the way that it has historically, given what we've seen up until this point. But look, to your, to your, your point earlier, monetary policy impacts the economy with a lag. And, and I do think that as we move into the middle of the year and the back half of the year, we can well begin to see some cooling in the employment statistics. And that's going to be the first sign to us that what the Fed has done has effectively worked its way through the system and may begin to cool off uh, final demand, which is the end goal when you're raising rates. So David, a uh, week ago, I was, I was fortunate enough to have breakfast with one of your colleagues, Mira Pendant. And she mentioned to me, the one of the data points you guys are looking at is the savings rate and credit card balances. And the saving rates are coming down and credit card balances are going up. And, and these are not, I mean, these are indicators that there is a little breakage finally, right, in the consumer. But is there a tipping point where you guys say, uh-oh, you know, this is a full-blown problem? So I think, you know, is there, is there a tipping point that we can identify with any precision? I, I think that that's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, one of the things that we've seen when we begin to break that data down by income bracket is that lower income individuals are being hit disproportionately hard. And so one of the things we see in the Chase data from the other side of, of our business is that people making less than, say, $75,000 a year have seen savings and checking account balances return to pre-COVID levels at the same time where, to your point, revolving credit use, right, credit card use, has been trending steadily higher. And that, in general, is a very late cycle combination of indicators. And so you're beginning to see some stress in the consumer space. Again, it's not being reflected in jobless claims or the official employment statistics uh, at least not yet, but it does feel like the consumer, which accounts for 70% of the U.S. economy and very much determines the broader direction of travel, is in worse shape today than they were 12 months ago. And I think that that tells us a lot about the broader direction of travel for the U.S. economy. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd like to expand on that. So consumer debt, I think, is at an all-time high. And I think more important, the extra savings that the average person had out there as a result of all the stimulus that we got in 2020 and 21, that seems to be draining down. That excess reserves that people had in their bank accounts seems that uh, it's starting to go away, right? I mean, people are dipping into it to meet their the inflation uh, demand problem that we're having. Um, and that seems like that money might run out around mid-year, latter part of this year. Um, do you expect the consumer finally to throw in the towel the latter part of this year? 
So I, I think, well, the consumer throw in the towel, I, I think a lot of that is tied to what happens with employment. Now, the Fed has said, if you look at their forecasts, that they think the unemployment rate will effectively be a percentage point higher than it is today at the end of 2023, and then at the same level by the end of 2024. What is interesting is that if you look over time, there is no example of the unemployment rate moving up by a full percentage point and then just stopping. Right. Economic variables tend to have momentum. And once things begin moving in a certain way, they tend to continue moving in that way. Now, I'm not saying that we need to see 10 percent unemployment or 14 percent unemployment. But I do think that if the Fed adequately cools demand and you see businesses respond by beginning to shed workers, that's going to create challenges for the consumer in the back half of the year. But again, if people aren't getting laid off and the unemployment rate remains low, effectively, these individuals should have enough cash flow to, to meet their basic spending needs and, and service their liabilities. And so, you know, I always come back to the idea that soft landings, you know, they don't really exist if you look throughout time. If there is a path to a non-hard landing in the current environment, it, it's directly tied to the ability of the labor market to remain tight as wage growth cools on, on its own. Um, again, a very narrow path, but, but not one that we think is you know, too much of a stretch, given what we're seeing in terms of business behavior. I'm glad you mentioned the recession and, and, the, and the phrase, you know, soft landing. I know you're listening to us on the open. I know you're a frequent you know, contributor on, on, on television and, and, and media outlets. Do you sometimes get frustrated when the media starts talking about no landing and hard landing? And, and, and is it make our jobs even more difficult when the media insists on labeling everything literally on a week to week or day to day basis? I, I think it, I think it does. You know, the way you get to know landing is you go second start to the right and, and straight on till morning, right? To me, the idea of no landing it just doesn't make sense. We're not going to see inflation go away and growth continue. Like that's not how how economics work. It also reminds me of the dark days of COVID when everybody was talking about what the recovery is going to look like. Is it going to be a V? Is it going to be an L? Is it going to be a hockey stick? We're always trying to apply these traditional frameworks to the current environment. And I'm not going to go as far as to say this time is different, but I do think that post-pandemic, this environment is very unique. You know, we effectively turn the economy off with a light switch. You can't turn it back on in the same way. And what we're seeing is that different parts of the economy is, are in very different places, depending on what happened to them during COVID. And so the traditional playbook to an extent is out the window, but I do think it makes it increasingly challenging when you see a lot of commentators and strategists try to take that traditional framework and apply it to the current environment. Because to me, it's, it's very much apples and oranges. You know, in theory, these things only happen every hundred years. Yeah, Dave, up until now, we've been talking about soft landing, hard landing, but really we're talking about the economic cycle that we're in. But a lot of the experts, and I'll use that term loosely, are talking about a earnings recession where companies really profited from all the extra stimulus we got in the last couple of years. And now that stimulus is being withdrawn, i.e. the Fed, Fed raising interest rates. Um, and so we could see earnings as one very well-known uh, Wall Street gentleman who talked about $190 of earnings on the S&P. I think the consensus on Wall Street is around 225. I think you guys are somewhere in the middle. But 
we certainly could have company earnings drop pretty dramatically this year. Absolutely. You know, the first thing I will say about that is if you look and we have about 80%, 85% of companies reporting their fourth quarter 2022 numbers, um, it does look like 2022 earnings on an operating basis actually decline. And not a lot of people are, are talking about that. So for the calendar year 2022, earnings fell. How much downside risk is there in 2023? The way that we think about it is if we're able to avoid a recession this year, earnings are probably flat. Uh, if we have a recession this year, we think earnings are probably down, call it 10 to 15% uh, relative to those 2022 levels. If you look over time, the average decline in corporate profits during economic recessions is closer to 30%. And a lot of people say, well, if we have a recession, why wouldn't we just see that, that 30% decline? And the reason is inflation. Right. Inflation is, is challenging if you're a consumer. Uh, if you're a business, inflation is, is really just known as pricing power. And so you know, if you look at the average decline in profits from the late 1960s through the early 1980s, it was 10 to 15 percent. It's actually 15 percent on the nose during recessions, as opposed to that 30 percent we've seen over time. And so, look, if the economy rolls over this year, we would expect earnings to decline in aggregate, but I'm not sure they necessarily need to decline as much uh, as some people believe. And, and taking that one step further in terms of what does it mean for market pricing, a lot of people then take that decline in earnings and try to apply a 2008, a financial crisis multiple, which is really only appropriate if you're having a financial crisis. And so we do think markets got a bit ahead of themselves so far in 2023, but the significant downside case of the S&P breaking 3,000, uh, we just don't really see how that comes to fruition, uh, barring some sort of exogenous or idiosyncratic shock uh, hitting the economy in, in 2023. So let's do this, David. We're, we're bumping up on a break in about in a minute or so. So rather than getting into a new topic, why don't, why don't we take a break here? And then we could pick up the conversation on the other side and and have you hope you brought your crystal ball. Hopefully it's working. And we could do a little little forecasting for the rest of the year. Sounds good. So we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. When you're thinking about where to park your cash. For over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing. But I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom. But the beauty of the funds is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. Mm -mm. Less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less for taxes. your cash. More Ask your advisor mm -hmm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Less taxes. Or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X. 
the tax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman with Dominic Tavella, my partner. And our guest this evening, David Leverwitz, Managing Director and Global Market Strategist with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. So, David, looking towards the rest of 2023, you know, we throw the recession word around a lot, which is by definition, although the government now has seemed to change that definition, two negative quarters of gross domestic product in a row. Is that correct? So it, it, that is the that is the cocktail napkin definition. Right. Um, the National Bureau of Economic Research for 75 years has been taking a little bit more of a, a an involved and granular approach. But you know the, the thing is right. What you're really looking for in a recession is final domestic demand rolling over, and that means weakness in consumption and investment. So the way that I split the difference between the you know gray-haired economist definition of a recession and what the average person on the street will tell you is, look, if the consumer's rolling over, if investment spending's rolling over, that to me constitutes a recession. So the first quarter of 2023, I guess we're still expecting a positive quarter, correct? And as I mentioned on the break, neither Dominic and I have gotten a phone call from from anyone, you know, expressing any wage insecurity, any fear they're going to lose their job or take a big pay cut. So you know, if we do have a recession sometime this year, which I think you guys on your team thinks we probably will, do you see that slowdown coming in the second or third quarter? Is it the third and fourth quarter? Where do you see the axe finally falling? So I think if I had to put a finger on it, I would say it's most likely the back half of this year. Uh, although I think that during the second quarter, we'll begin to see some of, like we talked about before the break, some of the impact of all of this Fed tightening uh, finally start to, to show up. You know, it's been interesting to see how robust the data has been uh, so far this year, particularly the hard data, which is somewhat at odds with some of the softer or, or the survey-based data. Um, we were talking about this uh, internally this morning. The seasonal factors are, are pretty messed up, and we think that some of these figures may be getting an artificial lift from the seasonal adjustments that the government is applying. Uh, But nonetheless, we went from a world where people were expecting growth to be flat to negative at the start of this year. And you've got the Atlanta Fed tracking 2.5% real growth for the first quarter of 2023. And what, what people seem to miss about this is 
if the economy is still chugging along, that means it's going to take longer for inflation to go back down. Right. You can't. And this is the no landing of, well, we've got growth, but inflation is going to take care of itself. I don't really see how that happens. Um, but yes, the start of the year has been stronger than we expected. All things considered, though, we do think that there is at a minimum a slowdown, coming, uh, if not a downturn coming during the second half of this year. And David, I'm not going to say that that uh, we're going to have even stronger quarters going forward, but traditionally the first quarter is a pretty slow quarter, right? It, traditionally, when you look at it quarter over quarter, the first quarter of the year is usually the worst quarter. Exactly. The first quarter for, for a number of reasons, right? There's a lot of spending and hiring into the end of the calendar year that kind of runs its course over the month of January and then the start. Uh, but it has been a little bit of a head scratcher. That's, that's for sure. Uh, the thing we're watching most closely to try to gauge the trajectory of growth uh, in the short to medium term is really what goes on with inventories. Uh, inventories are one of the biggest swing factors in GDP. They either help a lot or they hurt a lot. And what we're seeing are signs that, that inventories are bloated, uh, particularly when measured by days of sales. And so I think you may begin to see some softening in the inventory data you know, into the end of the first quarter and the beginning of the second quarter. That, to me, is really what could get the overall GDP machine uh, to begin slowing down in, in a more sustainable way. So... You know, you mentioned inventories. A year ago, if we were having this conversation, we would be talking about supply chain shortages. So here we are now talking about a bloated inventory. Where did that come from? Well, I think that there it came from from two places. Um, one is is businesses like humans suffer from recency bias, right? And they went from an approach characterized by just in time inventory mm -hmm. to just in case inventory. The problem is that happened at a time where the economy began to open back up. The global economy began to open back up. And so what we saw as companies were stocking more inventory was that consumers were shifting away from the consumption of goods and more so to the consumption of services, right? They weren't going to Target and buying sneakers and TVs. They were going out to dinner or going out to lunch or going on vacation. And so it was almost a, a, a kind of a uh, very unfortunate sequence of events where things began to open back up. That means that consumer goods in, in particular could flow more smoothly throughout the global economy, but that ability for them to get from A to B happened at a time where the demand for those goods was, was no longer the same. And that's very much what we're seeing today. And again, you know, this focus on services from a consumption perspective is what gives us a little bit of pause on the inflation story, because you're seeing wage growth. What are people using those wages for? They're going out and they're having dinner. They're going on vacation, so on and so forth. That can become self-reinforcing and self-fulfilling. And that's why, again, the Fed is so focused on those services prices in particular, because they want to make sure that a wage price spiral is not beginning to take hold um, in the United States. Indeed, for, for that very reason, this idea that we would have any kind of a deep recession seems uh, highly unlikely to me. Uh, the consumer coming completely off and stopping spending, they're changing their spending habits, as, as you just described. But the idea that they're going to stop spending, um, slow it down, possibly change their habits, possibly, but stop, uh, highly unlikely, in my opinion. I think that seems reasonable. And one of the other things that we look at is, is just where the most cyclical parts of the economy stand. And you know, this is stuff like housing and investment inventories uh, and auto sales. And everything just looks kind of average, right? You know, it's, it's not like things are way overextended 
in one direction like they were in 08 or like they were in 99 and 2000. Um, everything just looks kind of average. And so we think what that means from a recession perspective uh, is that if we have a recession, when we have a recession, uh, it ends up being relatively average as well. But you make a good point about the consumer. And, and I'll go back to something that my boss, David Kelly, said to me uh, very early on in my career, which is that recessions happen when people decide to wait and see, right? Your neighbor loses their job. It's a downturn. You lose your job. It's a recession. And that's why the labor market is going to be so central to how all of this plays out. David, every week when I do this show, I have my cheat sheet that I get from you guys every morning on Tuesday or Monday. And I look at the sector rotation right now, and we're talking about a recession a lot. And I see the worst performing sectors for this year are consumer staples, healthcare, utilities, and energy. They're all in the red. If we're having a recession, it would stand to reason these sectors have to start to rise, don't they? And the leaders, consumer discretionary, consumer communication services, technology, they're going to, they should, in theory, cool off a little bit, shouldn't they? I think that that, yes, I think that that's correct. I, I frankly think that the rally we've seen so far this year is, is very, very technical. Um, you had people stepping into names that were just so beaten up. Volatility has been low. That brings a lot of the trend followers and the hedge funds back into the market. Um, you obviously have kind of the, the volatility targeting funds, right, where you know, bonds have been extremely jumpy. And so, you know, with equity volatility lower than bond volatility, they're again kind of buying into to this story. But I, I do expect a bit of a rotation here back to what would be more aligned with what we've seen over time. Um, to me, the market's performance so far year to date has been a bit of a false dawn. And I think above all else, what people are going to start to value are cash flows, right? And the ability for these businesses to generate earnings. You think about who generates earnings during a soft patch or, or an economic downturn. Well, most people continue to pay their water and their power. That should help the utilities. Most people continue to brush their teeth and put food on the table. That should help the staples. You know, what are they not doing? Subscribing to streaming services or, or paying to have things delivered you know, later on that afternoon. And so I think that there is going to be a story here in 2023 where focusing on the earnings and the companies that can generate earnings in the macro environment that we see playing out is really going to end up being the key to successful investment performance. And Dave, wouldn't you argue that the sectors that Mike just um, uh, rattled off would actually be the most valuable to hold if we did get a slowdown in economic growth? Yes, ab absolutely. And so, you know, what I I'm basically in contrarian mode today, and, and I like the stuff that the market doesn't like, and, and I'm not a big fan of the stuff that the market does. You know, we were starting to get interested in some of the growthier, the, the profitable growthier stuff. Uh, at the end of last year, because we thought valuations were reasonable, and you know, we we think that a lot of these businesses are frankly high quality businesses. But you know, when everything goes up by 10, 15 percent, then the valuation argument begins to dissipate, and you're kind of left going back to the earnings potential of these companies in conjunction with the price that you're paying, rather than one or or the other. David, I'm a little surprised Dominic hasn't asked you this question yet. It's a topic near and dear to his heart. So I'll ask you before we run out of time, we have a bias at the moment towards value for all the reasons we laid out. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I'm, I'm, am I hearing that you guys would have a similar bias on your team? 
We, we do. And the way that I think about this, and, you know, there are, there are lots of arguments and, you know, people pay their water bills and people are buying staples and so on and so forth. I think what gives me the most confidence in not just the value trade and not just the international trade, but really a more balanced market in general going forward is the fact that when the Fed cuts rates, and the Fed will cut rates at, at some point, and the ECB will cut rates, and the Bank of England will, will cut rates, I don't think there's any appetite to go back to zero. And at zero, one thing works, long duration tech. When you actually have a cost of capital, that creates differentiation between winners and and losers and frankly favors value relative to growth and the rest of the world relative to the US. And so I do think that there is a story here where the stuff that hasn't worked for so long will begin to work better going forward because we're not gonna be in this environment of financial repression where all you have to do is own, you know, 10 tech companies and you end up beating the index. I think that that is very much fleeting. And I think that that era of, free, of easy money uh, has finally come to a close. And if I can piggyback on that question, Dave, you know, we, prior to last year, we had gone through a decade where these growth stocks way outperformed value. And the decade before that, it was value outperforming growth and vice versa. And we we finally heard this is the decade where value is finally going to outperform growth. And we're in it for like six weeks and it just isn't working. So, <laughs> so you do expect to change back to that value theme is what I'm gathering. So I, I do. I, I think that, again, you know, the market will be more balanced going forward. And the one thing that I always come back to on, on the value versus growth debate, and, you know, look, I did my MBA at Columbia and I took all the value investing classes and I get it. I think investing in value and being a value investor are two completely different things, right? Investing in value just means owning sectors that are weighted a certain way. Being a value investor means buying things that are mispriced. And I don't think that value investing ever goes out of style, but I think value as a style has gone out of favor as of late for all of the reasons that-, that And, and just for the record, that could mean large cap growth stocks that just have gotten beat up too much. Exactly. Exactly. So investors should always be focused on the price that they're paying and the ability of the business to generate cash flow. That That's the key to successful investing. But David, also historically, value companies for the general investing population are kind of tried and true companies that people are familiar with, whether it's where they do their banking or the phone service or where they do their shopping. I mean, yes, you guys have a way more sophisticated model, but isn't for the regular consumer looking at a value stock, a, just a tried and true company that's been around for decades? So I definitely think that you get that element of familiarity, right? I think that there's reason to have structural allocations to things like technology and growth because they do change the way that, that we live our lives. Um, but again, you know, you look at value and they tend to pay higher dividends. They tend to buy back more of their shares, right? They tend to be more interested in returning cash to shareholders over a shorter time horizon. And my point is that <clears throat> that matters more, right, in an environment where there's actually another option for income and yield. So you could buy a bond that pays you 2%. You could buy a value stock that pays you 2% or you could buy a growth stock that pays you 0% in, in income, and right? The trade-offs begin to look very different when you can actually go to the bond market to, to get you know, some sort of income-driven return. I'm glad you brought that up, Dave, because you know, we run balanced portfolio, and that means a portion of our 
uh, portfolio is in fixed income. We're finally, finally getting paid a decent return. I mean, yes, I don't want the Fed to aggressively raise interest rates, but dropping them back down to zero, I don't think is a good idea either. No, absolutely not. We saw that it, it creates bubbles. It creates distortions. And I actually think that if the Fed can maintain a positive cost of capital, markets will function far better than they have over the past 10 years. David, one last question. The inverted yield curve with the six month and the, and the, and the one year paying over 5%, any 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 idea when when that party might end? So I, you know the way that the curve usually uninverts is that the short end falls faster than the long end as the Fed cuts um, into or during an economic recession. Um, I think it's going to be the same this time around. I think the one thing that that we've been kind of tossing back and forth is usually there's call it a, an eighteen month lag between twelve to eighteen month lag between when the curve inverts and the onset of recession. Um, does it happen a little bit faster this time, just given the speed with which the cycle has moved? Um, that could very well be the case, but I still think it's a fairly solid indicator that again, at a minimum, we're headed into a slowdown, uh, if not a, uh, an outright down. And Dave, just to not put words in your mouth, but you're really looking at it as a 224 event, uh, not 23. Correct. I think that, you know, we, we will probably head into a downturn if we have one second half of this year, but I don't think that the Fed is going to start cutting until next year at, at, the, at the earliest. David, I know there's a tremendous amount of pressure on your time and, and you're, in, you're in high demand and we can't thank you enough for making the time this evening for us. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you again for- And uh, again, for appreciate you being a friend of the show and us and- uh, Hopefully we get to call you on and you again someday down the road. That sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. Appreciate it, Dave. Thanks, Thank everyone. you, David. We'll be right back after a quick break. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with for a quick wrap-up with Dominique Tavella. So, Dom, you know, we've, we, we're very fortunate. We say it every week. We get some really smart guests on the show. What did you think of David's comments? Um, I, I, I love them. Sometimes I have to be careful because I think we, you and I, are – very much been on the same page with what he and and they've been thinking all year long. So you don't 
kind of want to fall into the trap where you're just happy with what you're hearing because it's, it follows your own thought patterns. But I think he's right, Mike. I think uh, these markets did get ahead of themselves a little bit. I think the market was reading the tea leaves about what the Fed was going to do the balance of this year optimistically. Um, and maybe we have a little bit of a reality check right now. Yeah, because look, even even with today's sell-off, the market is still up. Um, this is not 2022, folks, at the moment. By now, a year ago, the market was definitely in sell-off mode. You know, we had frequent negative days in a row. You know, we're not, you and I are not inferring that we're remotely close to that. We're just inferring or implying that the market got a little ahead of itself. I mean, if David was saying the S&P is going to close the year at 4,100, and that's kind of where we were on Friday, that means the market just basically bumps along flat for the rest of the year. Yeah, and that would still mean up for the year, right, Mike? Right. Um, but I, I want to stress, and I, I always try not to get too wonky. I love my favorite word there, Mike. But, you know, when we say about the S&P 500, we have to think about that half of the S&P are these value stocks, which you brought up, Mike, really haven't done anything this year. In fact, some of these sectors, healthcare, energy, are actually negative for the year. It's that growth sector and maybe more speculative growth sector that actually has gone up a lot this year. We expect that to come back down to from these really high levels to come back down to whatever normal means. And maybe some of these sectors that have done nothing this year to actually come up. So we'll see more of a seesaw effect. Um, so, But I, I don't think anybody's calling for this, you know, anything like what happened last year. No, I, I, but, 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 you know, you said it, I think there's a little bit more moderation in tea leaves and, and, you know, you and I both get um, the weekly memo from Dr. Siegel um, from the Wharton school. And, and he put a memo out today that maybe he was a little too fast to call for the fed to slow it down and tap the brakes. And he was looking at the numbers that came out last week and actually indicated maybe the fed does have to do a little bit more. And, and Professor Siegel's been a guest of ours a couple of times, mm -hmm. and he's been very, very optimistic about what the returns might look like this year in, in terms of what the markets would do this year. And I think we said it politely that a lot of people were a little surprised by just how well, strong the economy has held up um, and likely to hold up for the first quarter and inflation staying a little hotter than maybe people had hoped. Right? And I think it's good that the narrative that the Fed might have to do more has kind of crept into the psyche. And we could see how the market reacts to that, Dom. Because look, if the if, if the Feds, we get a good CPI number, obviously the story changes again on a dime, right? But I think it's good that the kind of the market tests the water a little bit about, about getting disappointed. Um, look, uh, what and I believed it, and and maybe it's um, proving a little bit that I'm right, but we you just never know here. Um, I think the market, especially the speculative end of the market, really, really got ahead of itself, Mike. I mean, we're talking about the good quality growth stocks having gone up a lot this year, but the real speculative stuff, uh, some of it went up 60, 70%. It's just, just completely illogical given given the environment that we're in right now, it, 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 just not just me or you, Mike, a lot of the experts are just sitting there rolling their eyes going, this, this doesn't make any sense to me. That kind of stuff worries me, you know, because 
that's people betting on red or black. And that you listen, that usually doesn't end well. But the good quality growth stocks, and we talked about it with Dave, um, you know, if you can buy those companies at good values, good prices today, even if you go through a little bit of a roller coaster, you'll be fine a year and two and three down the road. It's the speculative growth that really has me worried. Look, you know, we also talk a lot about people's behavior and people had no appetite for risk at all last year. Risk was completely off the table. And with some of the stocks you're alluding to, risk just kind of came back on the table a little bit. Some of these stocks got oversold, but I'm sorry. Yeah, they got oversold, but I agree with you. I don't know if it's if it's healthy for one particular car manufacturer um, to go from 100 to 200 in six weeks. Or companies that literally might defaulted on their interest payments on their loans and sent out a filing that they might have to file for bankruptcy and the stock goes up by 30, 40%. I mean, you sit there and I, I don't even comprehend how this makes any sense. But but that edge is coming off and that would not that would not worry me at all. The market's retrenching here a little bit. I think it's healthy. Markets never go straight up. Um, they never go straight down. Um, but if uh, if they come back down to where pricing is a little bit more reasonable, let's just put a little capital to work. That could be a healthy thing. You know, spring training has started. And I'm wondering if Yogi Berra was thinking about the stock market when he said it's deja vu all over again. <laughs> In our case, Mike, it's 40 years of watching these things go up or down. And one thing we've learned is, you know, two steps forward, one back or two uh, on the upside. So don't get too stressed. Don't let the volatility get in your way too much of making good long-term decisions. I think a, a healthy pullback here especially in some of the more speculative names, is not a bad thing, not a collapse, not an end of the world. And if it gives us a good buying opportunity, even, even better. All right, Yogi. On that note, we are out of time. Appreciate the compliment. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> I love Yogi. He's a great philosopher, Dom. Listen, who doesn't love Yogi? <laughs> we can laugh all day long, but it actually makes sense. It really does. Have a good night, everybody. All of you as well. Stay safe, stay healthy. Talk to you soon, Mike. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.